much. Sorry for earlier. <laughs> the reading is out of the book of Ephesians uh, um, 4, from verse 7 to 16. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to prepare his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and became mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking of the truth, in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of God. Right, morning everybody. Uh, thank you, Faye, for that uh, very clear reading. Uh, can I extend a special welcome this morning to two visitors, Carolyn over there, who's joining us today from London. Um, she's a member of St. Simon's Church in Chelsea, and as you know, they're one of our partner churches. So uh, we, we welcome you. We're delighted that you're here today. And also Tori, Tori McCurvin, a uh, childhood friend of Alice and Olivia, and it's really lovely to see you and have you here with us as well. So please do greet them over coffee, find out about them, make them feel at home. In the meantime, please make sure that you've got that passage open in front of you, and um, I will lead us in prayer. Well, our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for the tremendous privilege of an open Bible. Please help us not to take it for granted. And we pray that these next few moments would be holy moments, that what we know not, you will teach us, uh, what we are not, you will make us, and what we have not, you will give us. And we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Well, the, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe 
uh, is one of the most popular children's books ever written. Uh, since it was first published, which I think is now more than 70 years ago, it's never been out of print, and in 2005, it was made into a film. In case you don't know the story, the drama begins with some children playing a game of hide-and-seek in an old country house. Uh, one of the children, named Lucy, goes and hides in a wardrobe. Now, on the outside, uh, the wardrobe is really nothing terribly special. But, of course, in the story, it turns out to be far more than just a wardrobe. It actually turns out to be a door into another world. Now, friends, an authentic New Testament church is rather like that wardrobe. Because for those on the outside... Uh, the church is either, you know, just a building uh, or it's a rather um, odd group of people who meet on Sunday mornings because they can't think of anything better to do. But for those on the inside, for those who enter into the church, who commit themselves to it and to the Lord Jesus, they discover that the church is actually a doorway into another world. Because the message of the New Testament is that a day is coming when God is going to remake this present world. And he's going to bring in a new world with none of the things that cause so much misery and so much unhappiness today. It's a world where people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language will be gathered together in loving community around the Lord Jesus. Uh, and in this particular letter in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that all of God's plans for that future are being worked out today through the local church. It is actually the most astonishing claim. It's so important that uh, I just need you to check up on me so that you know that I'm not sucking this out of the end of my thumb. Turn back, please, to chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10, where the apostle says, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. What Paul means by that is that the church today is a picture of everything that God is going to do in the future. God wants the rest of the world to know all about his plans. He doesn't want people to be in the dark about them. And so for that reason, the church is actually God's gift to the world. Not only giving the world a preview of what the future is going to be like, but also, like Lucy's wardrobe, it's, it's a doorway leading into a completely new life with a whole new set of possibilities that we never even thought of before. Now, friends, if all of that is true, when the outsider comes to church, what is it that God wants him or her to see? When they spend time with us and they 
listen to some of the things that we talk about and watch what we do, what should strike them? Well, our passage this morning highlights three things. Number one, they should, they ought to hear about a gracious king, a gracious king. So look at verse 7 with me, where Paul says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now that means that every Christian, without exception, has received a special grace gift from King Jesus. What is it? Well, you'll notice that in verse 8, uh, Paul tries to unpack and explain what he means with a quotation. Verse 8, uh, he says, That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now, of course, you look at that, your eyes glaze over, you think, what on earth is he talking about? It's not immediately obvious to us. It may have been obvious to the people who first read this letter, but it's not clear to us. So we've got to do some detective work. And in your Bible, you'll see that there's a footnote at the bottom of the page, which tells you that that is a quotation from Psalm 68. Now, you don't need to turn to Psalm 68 at the moment, but you do need to know that Psalm 68 celebrates the grace of God in rescuing Israel from Egypt. So you remember the story. Uh, uh, they were in Egypt. Israel were in captivity. They were slaves. And, and God brought them out with mighty signs and wonders so that they were slaves no longer. They were free. But there was a problem. Remember that they'd been in Egypt for more than 400 years. So they had absolutely no idea how to live in freedom as the children of God. And so what did God do about that? Well, the psalm tells us that the first thing he did was that he took them to Mount Sinai, where he taught them how to live in their new situation as his special people to enjoy that freedom. Now, we're not going to look at Psalm 68 this morning, but I do want to encourage you to read it for yourselves during the week. And the reason I want you to do that is because some scholars say that Paul had Psalm 68 as the background to the whole of the Ephesian letter. It's a pretty big claim. I think they might be right. But what we do need to understand this morning is that by quoting Psalm 68 here, Paul is saying that what God did for Israel back then was a rehearsal, a rehearsal for the much bigger rescue that God was going to accomplish in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's why Paul continues in verses 9 and 10 to talk about Jesus descending and Jesus ascending. Well, you know what that means. Jesus descending is obviously talking about the incarnation, came down from heaven, became a human being. Jesus ascending is talking about his resurrection and his return to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And with Psalm 68 in the background, 
Paul is saying that by entering our world as a human being, dying in our place, and then being raised in the power of an endless life, Jesus has done absolutely everything that's necessary to set you and me free. Now that means that if you are a Christian this morning, you are the most free, the most unbound, the most liberated of any human being. Because Christ has set you free from slavery to sin. He set you free from a guilty conscience. And he set you free from eternal death. Because, of course, for the Christian, death is not the end. And it means, you see, that these terrible things which still hang over the lives of our unbelieving family and friends, well, they're hanging over us no longer. And now we've been given a new start with a new Lord, the Lord of liberty. And this new start is God's gracious gift to us. So when outsiders come to church and start listening to us, that is the first thing they ought to hear. As I was preparing this talk, I, I met with a man who's been wrestling with uh, addictions of various kinds for three decades. It's ruined his family, it's ruined his life, it's ruined his career. Uh, he'd reached rock bottom at the time we met. Uh, he really wanted to change. He really wanted to change. But he'd discovered that he couldn't actually do anything to help himself. He was actually too far gone. He was a prisoner. So it was an enormous privilege for me to be able to talk to him about the freedom that Jesus gives as a free gift. I don't actually know whether in the end he accepted that gift or not, but I hope you see the point. When our friends and our family come to church, the first thing, the number one thing we want them to hear about is our gracious king and the rescue that he gives to everyone who puts their trust in him. Secondly, when the unbeliever comes to church, they should notice that the church is a happy school. A happy school. Now, when we uh, talk about spiritual gifts, we usually think of the various different gifts that are mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, so we might think of gifts like uh, serving or encouraging or uh, leadership or administration and so on. Those are vital to the health of every local church. What is very striking in our passage is that the gifts given here are not capabilities, they're people. Very striking. Now once again, uh, Psalm 68 is the background. And uh, you might remember that when God uh, brought Israel to Mount Sinai, he said to them, I'm going to take one particular group of people, the Levites, and I'm going to give them to you to serve you as priests. Now, in the same way, Paul says here that Christ has given four 
particular groups of people to the church. Look with me at verse 11. Can we all see verse 11 in our Bibles? Paul says, it was he, that is Christ, it was Christ who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. And I should say that grammatically that last pair, pastors and teachers, is talking about the same person. It's a pastor-teacher. Now what is so interesting, I think, is the fact that some of the church offices that you and I have grown up with, that we're so familiar with, aren't even mentioned. I mean, there's no mention of bishops. There's no mention of elders or deacons or vicars. Aren't they important? Well, of course they are. But you see, what the people in verse 11 have in common is that they are all ministers of the word. Of course, the apostles and prophets are no longer with us in person, but they are just as indispensable to the church today as they've always been. So glance back for a moment to chapter 2 and verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now that, you see, is because the apostles and prophets have recorded for us the eyewitness testimony to Jesus Christ. So they are very much Christ's gift to the church. Then Paul says there are the evangelists. Unfortunately, today, when you and I hear the word evangelist, we tend, don't we, to think about the celebrity who flies in for the weekend and gives a terribly moving talk and flies out again on Monday morning. But the evangelists that Paul trained in Ephesus weren't like that at all. They weren't. I mean, when Paul wrote to Timothy telling him to do the work of an evangelist, he wasn't telling him to start his own TV show. No, he was telling him to teach the apostles' message about Jesus clearly and comprehensively to all of the churches in the area. And men who do that today are very much God's gift to the church. And then lastly, there are the pastor teachers. The idea here is that having set his people free from captivity to sin and death, Christ gives them pastor teachers to show them how to live as his chosen people so that they can enjoy their new liberty. Now you see, my friends, that is why in the New Testament the church is a school. Um, I actually don't know what uh, your experience was of school, whether you enjoyed it or not. Uh, I guess perhaps for some of us, school was something that we perhaps endured rather than actually enjoyed. But the church is not like that. In the New Testament, the church is a happy school. 
Now, why do I say that? Uh, this is where it gets really interesting. So I want you to just look at your neighbor and check that they haven't nodded off. If they have, will you please dig them in the ribs and just get them to tune back in again? And uh, come with me to verse 12. In verse 12, uh, Christ gives these men as gifts to the church. Now notice this phrase, to prepare God's people for works of service. Some of your Bibles might say to equip God's people for works of service. Now that word translated prepare or equip combines two very important ideas. When I first began to study this passage, this was entirely new to me, but it's actually transformed my understanding of God's design for church more clearly than anything else. Because the first meaning of that word is to fix something that's broken. So elsewhere, the New Testament uses the word in the original to talk about the disciples mending or fixing their fishing nets. Apparently their nets were broken, they needed to be fixed before they could be used again. The word prepare also means to fill something that's empty. So it could be a jar or a container of some kind. Now, that is the picture that Paul wants us to have in our minds. Christ gives pastor teachers to the church to teach them God's word so that the people in church will be fixed and filled before they're expected to serve. Now, let's think about this together for just a moment. First of all, fixing. If the pastor's doing his job properly, he's going to be bringing God's word to God's people in a way that begins to heal their brokenness. You see, they can't possibly start doing works of service for the good of other people while they're still broken. They've got to first see God's cure for the problem of their own pain and suffering before they can help anybody else. But the pastor teacher can't stop there. He's also got to fill them. Now the point here is that when you came to church this morning, whether you knew it or not, there was a spiritual vacuum inside you. And as a pastor teacher, my job is to try and fill that vacuum as God gives me strength. And immediately the question you're asking is, well, what are you trying to fill me with, Simon? Well, come with me to verse 12 and look at it again. Paul says that the job of the men in verse 11, now notice this, is to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. Now, what is that? and in the knowledge of the Son of God. So the pastor teacher's job is to fill God's people with the knowledge of the Son of God. Now friends, that means that in God's school, 
there's only one subject in the curriculum. There's only one module. There aren't 57 like you have to deal with down at the college. Only one. What a relief. It's the knowledge of the Son of God and it is nothing else. But that is an astonishing statement. I mean, didn't they know the Son of God when they were converted? Well, of course they did. But you see, what Paul is saying here is that if they're going to be properly equipped for works of service, they've got to go on learning about him. Conversion is just the start. I think one cross-reference will clarify this for us. Keep a finger in Ephesians. Turn, please, to Acts chapter 2 in your Bible. Acts chapter 2. Now, you know this passage. This is uh, Peter uh, preaching the famous sermon on the day of Pentecost. His sermon is all about Jesus, and we're going to pick it up at verse 41. Verse 41, chapter 2, book of Acts. Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So 3,000 people all gave their lives to Jesus. Must have been a pretty impressive sermon. What was the first thing they did? Did they sort of rush off and start serving other people straight away? No, they didn't. In verse 42, the first thing they did was that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they went to school. Well, of course, because the apostles' teaching was all about Jesus. And notice, will you please, that it wasn't a bore. Uh, These new Christians were devoted to the teaching, so the sermons weren't boring. Why not? Because the teaching was all about Jesus fixing them where they were broken and filling them where they were empty. Well, come back to Ephesians. Because, you see, this is the pattern, isn't it, for the church today. That's what ought to be happening this morning. Before the service, I prayed that God's word would fix you and fill you. Not just for your own benefit, though that, of course, is extremely important, but so that you would be thoroughly equipped for the work that God has prepared for you to do. Because, you see, Christ expects every Christian to be a worker. Now, I think we need to pause on that for just a moment. It's so important for us to understand this. Because, you see, many people think that church is about a professional serving a group of consumers. It's a sort of spectator sport, and the congregation give the pastor marks out of ten at the end of the sermon, or whatever it is. You won't find that idea anywhere in the New Testament. I'd like you to listen to John Stott's comment on this verse. I hope it might appear on the screen. There it is. He says this, quote, The New Testament concept of the pastor 
is not of a person who jealously guards all ministry in his own hands and successfully squashes all lay initiatives, but of one who helps and encourages all God's people to discover, develop, and exercise their gifts. His teaching and training are directed to this end to enable the people of God to be a servant people, ministering actively but humbly according to their gifts in a world of alienation and pain. Thus, instead of monopolizing all ministry himself, he actually multiplies ministries. And John Stott goes on to say in his commentary that on one of his tours in the United States, he was preaching at a church in Connecticut. And on the front of the bulletin, there was the name of the rector, and then underneath that, the assistant rector. And then underneath that, it said, ministers, semicolon, the entire congregation. Now, that's exactly right. That's the model for us. The New Testament pattern is that the pastor feeds you and you do the ministry. How are we feeling about that? So, when a visitor comes to church, God wants them to hear about our gracious king and his power to rescue all men and women from sin and death. God also wants them to discover that the church is actually a happy school in which God's people are being fixed and filled for a lifetime of useful service. Lastly, very briefly, God wants them to see and hear that the church is a healthy body. See, at this point, I think we might well ask, well, what are the works of service that God is actually expecting of every Christian? And once again, the answer is not actually what most people think. You'll find it in the second half of verse 12. Paul says the pastor prepares God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. Paul says the church is a body. Now let that thought just sink in for a moment. It's very significant. Because you see, it means that church is not a meeting that I go to. No, church is a body I belong to. I think that's a challenge to the way that many, many Christians think today. So listen to the way that one man described his attitude to church. He said this, when I go to church, I want to pray, I want to worship God, and I'm doing it myself. I'm not very interested in who else is there, and I'm afraid I can't abide it when someone wants to shake my hand in the middle of it all. Of course, you know, that kind of individualistic attitude misses the entire point. Paul is reminding us that every Christian in the local church is a part of the body. And he or she has a God-given responsibility to build it up. That means if you are a Christian, you are a bodybuilder. 
It's an interesting thought, that, isn't it? Perhaps you can use that to start a gospel conversation this week. So when a friend says to you tomorrow morning, well, what did you do over the weekend? You can say, well, didn't you know I'm a bodybuilder? That's what I was doing yesterday morning. Come back next weekend and tell us what happened. How do we do this bodybuilding? Verse 15, speaking the truth in love. When we do that, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So brothers and sisters, the health of every local church, the health of St. Barnabas, depends on you and me learning to speak the truth in love. What does that mean? Well, it's very important to understand what Paul is not saying. You know, he's not saying be ruthlessly honest with each other, but do it nicely. You know, there are some Christians who do that, and they're a perfect nuisance. A much better translation would be confessing the truth in love, because the truth that he's talking about is the gospel. Paul wants every Christian to understand the gospel with such blazing clarity that it becomes the lens, the filter, through which they think about every situation, every circumstance in their own lives, and in the lives of their brothers and sisters at church. See, that, friends, is how we build one another up. We learn to speak the gospel into each other's lives in love. Now, of course, there are always going to be times when relationships in the church get strained. That's inevitable, because even though we may be soundly converted people, we've been Christians for 35 years or whatever it is, we are sinners still. But you see, when relationships are strained, instead of withdrawing, instead of pulling back, instead of saying, I'm not going to church today, God expects us to do something about it. Specifically, he expects us to know how to speak the truth in love, the gospel, to one another. Can I just spell this out for you? In order to be able to do that, we need... Two things. First, we need to know one another. There's got to be a real relationship. We need to know one another well enough to actually know what's going on in one another's lives. Can you therefore see that simply chatting to one another for five minutes over coffee after the service isn't enough? And secondly... We need to know the gospel well enough to be able to apply it to one another in a helpful and encouraging way. And you see, a healthy church is one where all of the members are doing this for one another. And if you're doing this, you might well find that God uses you to bring somebody through that door into a completely new world. But if you can't be bothered, 
If you think, you know, this is just going into the too difficult file, I can't deal with this, you will always be stuck in verse 14. Look at verse 14. It is a desperately sad picture of the baby Christian who never grows up. He doesn't have any real relationships in the local church. And even if he did, he's never learned the gospel well enough to speak it into someone's life in a way that's loving and helpful. I guess that all of us know people like this. People for whom the gospel is a category in their thinking, but it's not the driving force in their lives. And in verse 14, very frighteningly, I think, Paul says that people like that are infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. See, they might be keen, but in a crisis they're clueless. They've got nothing to offer. And our only protection against being like that is to make sure that we learn the truth for ourselves through the teaching on Sunday morning, through our own personal Bible reading, through home group, through one-to-one, whatever it is. And as we learn that truth, we need to learn to speak it to one another in love. Well, that's more than enough to think about, so let's stop and ask for God to help us do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you are revealing your plans for the future, not through a glamorous, powerful human institution, but through local churches like ours. You've taught us how the local church is to operate, and we ask for your forgiveness for the times when in our foolishness and weakness, We have perverted your perfect design. And so this morning we recommit ourselves to your plan. Make us a people who encourage and support our pastors to teach us about the Lord Jesus. That we might be fixed where we are broken and filled where we are empty And then, Father, we pray that you would give each one of us a burden to be bodybuilders, building up the body by speaking the truth in love so that our church might be a display of your wisdom to a lost and a dying world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.